0: 80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Evergreen Productions. You can find this and several other fascinating podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com.
1: I mean, he gave more than $10 million to President Biden's uh, election campaign in in 2020, but he really didn't launch his full-scale assault or uh, charm offensive on D.C. until 2021. And so, you know, that... That gives us like sort of 18 months or so. And and I think it was even more uh, condensed than that, during which he was able to help advance crypto legislation, uh, give more than $40 million to political campaigns and even give away by some estimates, you know, almost $200 million uh, through philanthropy and, and other sort of charitable giving.
0: Welcome to Approved Politics, Behind the Curtain, a special series looking at Sam Bankman-Fried, his company FTX, and their meteoric rise through the hallways of Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Bill Shute. The political scientist John Kingdon is known for introducing us to the concept of policy streams. He tells us there are three key elements to every successful creation of policy. Broad acceptance that a problem exists which needs fixing. A solution that is offered to fix the problem, and the ability to rally the political will so that at least a majority of decision makers will adopt the solution. Let's apply that concept to FTX and SBF. Problem. An unregulated Wild West that was drawing an increasing amount of attention from critics and regulators alike. Solution. Control the debate and create a regulatory structure that would benefit FTX. And political will. Become a recognized and trusted voice of reason by making friends and influencing people inside the Beltway. It's that last point how FTX used a typical advocacy playbook that's the focus of this episode, and how they succeeded at moving the political will of four key targets regulators, Congress, the White House, and media. as I've mentioned before, what they were doing wasn't that unique. When you take a look at how SBF and FTX methodically set up to become power brokers in DC circles, you'll find a lot of familiar tactics. It's not like they created an entirely new approach to federal advocacy, after all. They literally used every page in the playbook. What they did was run a massively accelerated two-minute offense. Now, at the heart of each advocacy campaign is the ability to communicate a complex subject in easily understood snippets and soundbites. Advocates accomplish this by issuing press releases, having social media campaigns, advertising, uh, the creation of policy statements, among many other tools, right? Messaging is also at the heart of one-on-one meetings with decision makers, what we call shoe-leather lobbying, right? And the key to effective messaging is simple. Have one simple message. For example, when my wife worked in the D.C. office of an environmental cleanup company, she helped grow the company's presence in D.C. with a one-sentence policy goal she repeated before every decision-maker in town. More cleanup, fewer studies. SBF, too, had one basic message. He regularly told Washington Insiders that crypto customers would be best served if futures and spot markets were regulated by the same agency. The result of this would be that crypto transactions would move back from other less regulated markets in other countries to the U.S. But even with a simple message, you have to be proactive and creative to get people in this town to hear it. So let's open up the FTX SBF playbook and break down how exactly they were able to do that. First, they used a tried and true Washington trick of recruiting foot soldiers who could open doors and help deliver the message. All too often in Washington, that can mean not only hiring good advocates who are eager to sign up for duty, but also taking experts off the field before the other side snatches them up. FTX did that. But some of the foot soldiers were just born to help the effort, or at least join the family business. You see, when it came to Washington, SBF had family connections to draw upon. In 2018, his mother, the Stanford law professor Barbara Freed, founded a political action committee called Mind the Gap, which uses statistical analysis to advise Democratic donors on which candidates and causes are worthy of support. To guide its recommendations, the PAC employs what it calls rigorous research and quantifiable metrics. Ring any bells? Remember our talk about effective altruism in the first episode? Hmm? His father, Joseph Bankman, specializes in tax law at Stanford and has written two casebooks on the subject. He's also a clinical psychologist and teaches mental health law. And Bankman's no stranger to Washington either. Back in 2016, he helped Senator Elizabeth Warren during her attempt to simplify the tax code. After significant work on the draft, he then joined 53 other law professors signing a letter of support for the bill. And by many accounts, SBF used his parents' connections when meeting with Washington officials. His father, by the way, who was also a paid employee of FTX for a while, would even join in some of these meetings. Next, FTX began to bolster their in-house muscle, starting with another classic page from the playbook, Get the Revolving Door Spinning. Since FTX was trying to create a new and sustainable regulatory model, that meant they needed regulatory expertise
1: that's a part of the playbook that a lot of folks have used over the years. Um, and Sam, despite being, you know, in his late twenties when he started this and and 30 now, was very smart in terms of hiring former officials and, and taking advantage of the revolving door.
0: Well, that's our old friend, Dakin Campbell from the Insider. I asked him to tell us a bit more about who exactly walked through that revolving door to help SBF and FTX.
1: So with regard to the CFTC, um, Sam really focused on hiring former officials from that agency. Um, you know, he hired a trio of them, uh, a lawyer named Ryan Miller, a former commissioner named Mark Wuchin and the former chairman, uh, Chris Giancarlo. And so the three of them really gave Sam a lot of information and a lot of knowledge about how the CFTC works and about how to tailor his message to that agency in a way that it would be received most helpfully.
0: Weechin, by the way, was hired as FTX's first head of policy, not only because of his history at the agency, but also because, I'm just guessing here, Weechin also worked once for former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. And during the spring of 2022, according to lobbying disclosure reports, An entity called West Realm Shires Services, Inc., doing business as FTX U.S., hired a former Republican Senate staffer by the name of Eliora Katz to be FTX's first in-house lobbyist. In case you were wondering, Katz listed lobbying expenses of $270,000 each quarter this year. And while Katz may have been their only employee registered as a lobbyist, FTX also used the classic tactic of hiring a stable of outside help. All told, it hired a total of 13 lobbyists across town this past year, 10 of whom had swung through one revolving door or another. That stable included former staff from the offices of Chuck Schumer, Pat Toomey, a few House members, key committees like Senate Ag, House Ag, Armed Services, and agencies such as the OMB and, wait for it, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Even a former top aide, the Senator Manchin, was hired to lobby by a third-party group affiliated with FTX. All told, FTX disclosed spending more than $1.5 million on Washington lobbyists during 2022. And remember, they didn't make it to the end of the year. So how did this team go about influencing their key targets? Let's start with regulators. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American Maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts, or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel. As we learned in Episode 2, the primary policy goal of SBF and FTX was to park any inevitable regulatory oversight with the weaker CFTC. And I would venture to guess it's for this reason that the CFTC and its chairman, Rostin Bayman, became the biggest targets in SBF's charm offensive. Benham's background appears very well suited to the CFTC. According to his Wiki page, Benham is a lawyer who worked as an equities trader in New York and also worked for the New Jersey Bureau of Securities. He was first appointed to the CFTC by Trump, then nominated by Biden to be the chairman the role he now holds under a term set to expire in 2026. According to comments made by Chairman Bainham during a journal interview, he met with SBF and his team 10 times over a 14-month period. This must have had some effect because on multiple occasions, Bainham appeared to be friendly to FTX's idea to allow customers to trade directly on his exchanges rather than requiring a broker to act as a middleman. Bainham even went so far as to tell attendees of a financial markets conference at Georgetown that this proposal may be an evolutionary shift towards the future of trading. And this attitude wasn't necessarily limited to the hallowed halls of the CFTC. Despite SEC Chairman Gary Gensler's protestations, many sources have said that SBF even managed to make inroads with SEC staff. Well, this page out of the playbook was apparently working so well the critics of the idea began to worry. The CEO of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Terry Duffy, stated on a podcast that CFTC officials appeared ready to approve the proposal. In the opinion of Duffy, all the Washington regulatory world and several key members of Congress seemed to be under a spell cast by SBF. Referring to a visit he made last May, he said, I've been coming to Washington for 25 years. I've never seen a Washington, D.C. like I saw that time. From regulators to members of Congress singing hymns I'd never heard before. No one else was calling BS on these clowns but me. And this circus wasn't just limited to FTX's regulatory play. It was beginning to spill over to support legislation as well. CFTC Chair Bayham Was publicly pushing for passage of the DCCPA, the pro FTX legislation we discussed last episode, introduced by Senator Stabenow and working its way through her committee. Oh, Benham, by the way, was a senior counsel to Stabenow before his initial nomination to the CFTC in 2017. Hey, before we get back to the rest of the story, I just wanted to let you know, I made a visit to the studios of Big Wig Media last week. And wow, what a setup. These guys, I've got it all. They can help you with podcasting, with audio content, with digital content, with live studio shots, and even satellite links. So if you're bringing a group to town or you've got a message you want to get out, add Big Wig Media to your playbook. In the previous episode, I mentioned the December 2021 hearing at House Financial Services Committee. You know, the one where SBF ditched the cargo shorts and t-shirt for an actual suit and tie? Very Washington. By all accounts, he performed well and positioned himself as the warm and trustworthy face of crypto. Obviously, he was very supportive of DCCPA passage and even extended the offer of a helpful hand. When asked how Congress could ensure that the CFTC had adequate resources to venture into this new territory, SBF suggested fees and perhaps even direct contributions from the crypto industry. Anyone else see a possible conflict here? Now this hearing was a direct result of FTX and SBF's multi-million dollar charm offensive involving two years of lobbying and networking, aggressive fundraising and political giving, and oh yeah, that... $3.3 million townhouse on Capitol Hill. Along the way, SBF not only worked the regulators in town, but he cultivated relationships with several members and -and rank-and-file congressional staffers who do much of the heavy lifting in getting legislation passed. Now, with apologies for a ham-handed segue, let's take a look at the political contributions made by the FTX team. I mean, honestly, our system relies on freely giving aid to elect those we want in office, What's the alternative? Are tax dollars supporting who the people in charge want to be in charge? This is the essence of a true democracy, having said that. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, it turns out that SBF was the number two overall top donor to Democrats in the previous election cycle, behind only George Soros. At the same time, the CEO of FTX Digital Assets, a guy by the name of Ryan Salami, was the number 11 overall donor to Republicans, contributing $23 million. Another team member, FTX engineering director Nishad Singh, contributed $8 million to liberal and independent efforts. They weren't going to leave any rock unturned or check unwritten. Overall, these donations made FTX the third largest contributor in the entire political giving landscape. That's 10 times more, than the 7 million dollars FTX individuals contributed during the 2020 election cycle. Generous to say the least and on the surface consistent with their belief in effective altruism.
1: Now he's been asked this question many different times, you know, about his political giving or his charitable giving and and he will he has said that it hasn't been to influence policy or Uh, or regulations, that he was actually, he's in favor of democratic policies or the particular lawmakers that he was supporting or the particular causes that he was supporting. But it did all add up to uh, get him a favorable ear among many constituents in in Washington. And I think it was all working towards uh, getting regulation and, and legislation that favored his company as best as it could.
0: Now, I need to point out that not all of this money went straight to candidates. That would have exceeded federal contribution limits by a ton. What they did was spread it around affiliated and non-affiliated political entities. That included groups like Protect Our Future, a political action committee that says it's focused on stopping pandemics, and American Dream Federal Action, a group that funneled money to Republicans. Both of these got nearly all of their funding from FTX officials. For instance, Protect Our Future got $27 million from SBF, while American Dream Federal Action got $15 million from Salami. SBF also gave $6 million to Nancy Pelosi's House Majority PAC, $5 million to Future Forward USA, a group that backed President Biden's 2020 campaign, and $3 million to Chuck Schumer's Senate Majority PAC. Salami gave $2.5 2.5 million to the Senate Leadership Fund affiliated with Mitch McConnell and 2 million to the Congressional Leadership Fund which is associated with Kevin McCarthy. Among contributions to the direct campaign accounts of members, they maxed out by the way on both Senate Ag leaders Stabenow and Boozman. Now by the way, the previously mentioned Protect Our Future PAC, the largest beneficiary of FTX money, is something called a carry committee. Basically, carry committees are hybrid PACs that have the ability to operate both as a traditional PAC, contributing funds to a candidate's reelection, and as a super PAC, making independent expenditures. Now, to do so, carry committees must have separate bank accounts for each purpose. The committee can collect unlimited contributions from almost any source for its independent expenditure account, but may not use those funds for its traditional PAC contributions. Built-in firewalls. Protect Our Future, by the way, describes itself as an organization designed to help elect candidates who will be champions for pandemic prevention, but that also supported pro-crypto candidates' official data shows. If $3 million will get you a townhouse on Capitol Hill, what can you get for $10 million contribution to a presidential election campaign? During 2020, FTX and Alameda Research did just that to help Joe Biden become president. Now, you and I both know that's not that unique. In fact, the process is full of legal, above-board, fully disclosed ways to do that, and lots of people do. And I can think of several reasons why people jumped on the Biden bandwagon in 2020, not the least of which was a desire to see someone else, anyone else, in the Oval Office. But like so many others... SBF appears to have been trying to get noticed and curry some favor in a new White House. This must have worked, because in May, Coindesk, a self-described integrated platform for media, events, data, and indices involved in the cryptocurrency world, reported that SBF met with Charlotte Butash, a policy advisor to Biden's deputy chief of staff, and Stephen Roschetti, counselor to the president. As one of my previous guests on 80 Proof Politics put it so well, one of the best tactics for advancing a policy agenda is to create a surround sound around the topic. And what he meant was that shoe leather lobbying and the occasional favorable press piece just won't cut it anymore. You have to create an immersive atmosphere around your efforts that can't be ignored. But politicians weren't the only ones to succumb to FTX's charm offensive. To a large extent, reporters and media outlets got swept up in it as well. There's no better way to create a surround sound. SBF's earnest-sounding but fuzzy plans to give his money away made him a refreshing contrast to the crypto bro stereotype. Several media outlets, from niche crypto platforms to well-respected brands, bought into his effective altruism nonsense and were tripping over each other to publish fawning stories. Groups affiliated with FTX and SBF retained public affairs firms to help spread the word around Washington, such as Plus Communications, an arm of conservative messaging organization FP1 Strategies, and FTX also committed $5 million to ProPublica, a non-profit news organization to support reporting focused on pandemic preparedness and biosecurity. This funding supported several staff and articles, including a huge piece related to the possibility that COVID leaked from a Chinese laboratory run by Vanity Fair. Perhaps the biggest media bombshell to emerge recently was when Axios reported that a news site called The Block had been funded by massive loans to its CEO, Michael McCaffrey, from none other than Alameda Research. Apparently, the block had fallen on hard times towards the end of 2021. Facing bankruptcy, McCaffrey unsuccessfully tried to get investors to refinance, but when that failed, he started talking to SBF about investing. Rather than that, loans amounting to $27 million were arranged from Alameda to several LLCs controlled by McCaffrey. Another big chunk of that money, an estimated $16 million, went to an LLC named Red Sea that McCaffrey used, in part, to buy an apartment in the Bahamas. You may have seen that apartment during the many interviews SPF gave before his arrest and extradition. And one of the best and most affordable ways to create a policy surround sound is through earned media. You know, the press that just happens. But even a good portion of that is the result of money and time spent on messaging. Let's call these and other things we're going to talk about bank shots. So in addition to hiring lobbyists, making political contributions, and wooing the media, SBF and FTX hired several outside experts, commissioned polls, spent millions attracting customers. One of the most high-profile things FTX did in this regard was branding anything that stood still in some that don't. They sponsored the Formula One international racing team backed by Mercedes, a global partnership with the International Cricket Council, and a five-year deal with Major League Baseball. They entered a 10-year agreement to change the name of Cal Memorial Stadium in Berkeley to FTX Field and inked a $135 million deal to change the name of Miami Heat Stadium to FTX Arena. FTX went on to secure endorsement deals with top names like Tom Brady, Steph Curry, and created hugely popular commercials starring Matt Damon and the one you would have seen during the Super Bowl with Larry David. Aside from all that, SBF gave speeches at think tanks, like the Bipartisan Policy Center. He organized a fancy conference called Crypto Bahamas, where SBF rubbed shoulders with Bill Gates and Tony Blair, he even talked to Elon Musk about investing in Twitter. At the same time, FTX was also handing out huge sums and charitable donations, which served to bolster its political aims. The company managed the FTX Future Fund, a philanthropic endeavor that claims to have given out more than $190 million, and it continued to grant money through an entity called Guarding Against Pandemics.
1: We've talked a lot about how Sam met with Folks in Congress, and how he got close to everyday staffers, and how he made inroads with the regulatory agencies. Um, there's a part of this that we haven't talked about all that much, and that's this 501c4, so this partisan lobbying organization he set up or that he funded, called Guardian Against Pandemics. And as we were reporting out this story, one of the things that we that came back to us a couple times was that uh, oftentimes Sam would go into a meeting and end up talking about guarding against pandemics and, and the work that it was doing to prevent the next pandemic at the same time that he was talking about crypto policy. And so if you're a lawmaker who is interested in preventing the next pandemic and you want to talk to somebody who's doing some of the foremost work on that um, out of a nonprofit uh, organization, you know you're you probably are going to take a a meeting with Sam, or you'd be more inclined to take a meeting with Sam than if he didn't if he hadn't funded this nonprofit. And so you know the fact that meetings about that nonprofit would also veer into crypto regulation or or the crypto industry or how Sam was um, trying to position the industry in, in Washington, I think is is a really sort of interesting and you know potentially dastardly a strategy. You know, it makes it hard for people not to take your meeting while at the same time giving you a platform and a way to talk about, you know, something that's really going to advance your business interest.
0: One thing more about Guarding Against Pandemics. It's directed by SBF's younger brother, Gabriel, who was a 25-year-old congressional staffer at the time of its founding. Basically, all of this general philanthropy and old-fashioned Politicking helped young Gabe, who as recently as early 2021 had been handling constituent mail in Congressman Sean Kasten's office, now secure meetings with Pelosi, McConnell, and the White House. Oh, and it helped SBF get meetings with federal officials, too. And I can't believe I haven't even mentioned the Capitol Hill townhouse in this episode yet. Well, okay, I did briefly, early on. This $3.3 million gem became the centerpiece of SBF's DC universe. He and the company hosted numerous events there, such as salon-style dinners, campaign events, and partisan social hours such as Democratic Night and Republican Night. The townhouse was also to be the home of FTX's blowout holiday party this year. Miller Whitehouse Levine, policy director of the crypto nonprofit the DeFi Education Fund, told Insider, the talk of the town was it was going to be the craziest D.C. Christmas party ever. You know, with the FTX House of Cards tumbling down on November 6th, this may have been the one catastrophe That hit DC harder than anything else. Before we wrap up this mini series next episode with a look at how that House of Cards just came falling down and what the ramifications are for others trying to become players in DC, once again, my thanks, big time thanks to Dakin Campbell and his colleagues, Rob Price. Jack Newsom and Darius Rafian from The Insider. Their brilliant article Mr. Crypto goes to Washington took an idea I was working on and just blew it open. Have you ever been tapped on the shoulder by a muse? Presidencies can be found anywhere Fine Podcast can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.